They tried to make me go to rehab, and I said yes because I was 14. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep into the disease that tells you you don't have a disease, the disease of alcoholism. As promised, I will be telling you why the world is much better off now that I don't drink. And then I will be talking to the founder of Conscious Recovery, TJ Woodward. Conscious recovery is an approach to treating alcoholism and addiction that moves beyond simply treating behaviors and symptoms. It focuses on the underlying core false beliefs that lead to addictive behaviors. So very applicable for adult children. Excited for y'all to hear that. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, you're oh, no, no, no. I ain't got the time. I have my daddy's ex, I'm fine. Now, alcohol affects people in different ways. And I am the breed of alcoholic that has an extreme personality change for the worse. When I ingest alcohol, I become a hot-ass mess. All of my personality flaws are magnified to the hundredth degree. Let me give you an example of this. I think it will illustrate it for you beautifully. So it was the beginning of my senior year of high school, and I get invited to a birthday party. Now, there were some stipulations around me being allowed to attend this party. I was only allowed to drink beer. Initially, actually, I was told that I couldn't drink at all, but I was able to negotiate to beer only. And this was because of some recent incidences with this particular group of people where I had essentially been a fucking sloppy mess. So I fully intended on following this beer only policy. I drank a bottle of wine by myself before I went to the party. I thought that this would help me, you know, kickstart my buzz to where just drinking beer at the party would be enough for me. But I am an alcoholic and my intentions don't mean shit when I ingest alcohol. And it wasn't long after arriving at the party before I started sneaking liquor. And then it wasn't very long after that that I find myself getting kicked out of the party and escorted home by two people that were there. So what did I do? Well, I called a taxi and I had that taxi take me right back to the party. Great idea. And when my re-arrival was not warmly welcomed, well, I created quite a scene and made quite a lot of noise, which caused the neighbors to call the police And everyone at the party got arrested for underage drinking. Yes, I was that girl. 
I know you are super bummed that you didn't have the opportunity to drink with me. I was quite the party animal. But based off my genetics, I really didn't stand much of a chance of not becoming an alcoholic. It runs heavy on both sides of my family. And I actually stepped foot in my first AA meeting when I was 12. In the beginning of sixth grade, my mom got sober. And when she had 90 days, I went with her to her meeting to see her pick up her chip. Now, this was an open meeting, which meant that anyone was allowed to share. So at a certain point, I raised my hand, and when called on, I said, Hi, I'm Andrea, and I don't want to be an alcoholic. Little did I realize when I uttered those words that less than two years later, I would find myself in inpatient rehab for the first time. One night in the eighth grade, I came home super drunk and upset. My boyfriend of probably a few months had broken up with me. And for some reason, I decided to confess to my mom that I smoked pot every day. Why I felt the need to disclose this information, no fucking clue. But needless to say, four days after my 14th birthday, I found myself at the Karen Foundation in Warnersville, PA. Now, was I really that bad off at that point? Was I a raging alcoholic and addict? No. But remember, I had already been deemed the identified patient in my family, so that fit in perfectly with that role. And my parents were also very aware of the genetic aspect of alcoholism and addiction, so they were truly trying to cut the problem off before it got any worse. But newsflash, it does not work that way. And my experience in rehab that time was truly more traumatic than anything else. I was made fun of frequently by the other girls because I was the youngest. I was only in there for weed and alcohol while the rest of them were in there for harder drugs. And I cried essentially every day from being so homesick. Mind you, my separation anxiety issues were not that far behind me. My roommate was this girl named Elizabeth, and she was 18, and she was a heroin addict from Baltimore, and she used to steal uh, myself tanner without asking me. You guys, I had a really, really, really bad self-tanner problem from about the age of, I don't know, 13 to 18, and I really feel like everyone did me a disservice by not telling me how, how tragic this truly was. So we were in the building that was the adolescent unit, which also had boys, but we were completely separated from them. The only time we were around them was in the cafeteria during meals, but we could not talk to them. We could not sit with them. We were not even allowed to stare at them. However, there was this communal table that had the toasters on it, and that's where some note passing would go on. The boys and girls would leave their notes in the wicker baskets where the little tiny peanut butter and jelly packets were. But I did not get involved in any of that because there was a chance that I would have to stay for an additional three months to go to the extended program. So there was no way in fucking hell that I was going to get into any trouble that could cause me to stay longer. And thankfully, I got to go home after 28 days. And I had zero intention in staying sober, but I sure as hell did not want to get sent away again. 
For the first six months after getting out of treatment, my parents were drug testing me on a weekly basis. So I figured out other ways that I could get high that wouldn't show up on a drug test. I abused Benadryl, Robitussin, Dramamine. Now, the high-induced by over-the-counter medication is not an enjoyable or euphoric one. I felt irritable, anxious, sick to my stomach. I would spend hours staring in the mirror at tiny imperfections on my face. There were really unpleasant auditory and visual hallucination. One time, I lost all control over my motor functions for several hours after drinking an entire bottle of Robitussin. Needless to say, it was not fun. And each time I would do it, I would say to myself, this is horrible. I'm never doing this again. Yet the following day, I would find myself saying the exact same words. And this is what we call addiction, my friends. Continued use despite unpleasant and negative consequences. And to my 14-year-old self, a super miserable high was better than no high at all. So as soon as my parents stopped drug testing me, I started smoking pot again on a daily basis. And I actually managed to get away with it for almost an entire year until the summer between ninth and 10th grade when I had my first incident with the law. I was hanging out with my friend Tyler Now, I had met Tyler at the outpatient rehab that I had gone to after I got out of inpatient. Now, here is the deal with adolescent outpatient rehab. No one there is there because they actually want to get sober. They're forced there by their parents or by the law. So truly, all it serves is as a networking event to meet other kids that have the same problem as you and have no intention of getting sober. So we're in Tyler's car, and we had just bought weed, and we get pulled over by the police. Unbeknownst to us, they had seen the transaction go down. They saw the guy come up to the car, and then they saw us drive away. So the cop asks us if we have any drugs in the car, which of course we said no, and then he tells us he will be searching the car. But then there was this five-minute period of time where we were left alone in the car when he took Tyler's license and registration back to the cop car. And I said to her, I said, we have to eat this weed. And this weed was some shitty ass swag weed. It was super dry. There were lots of stems and seeds. And there was no liquid in the car, no water, nothing. When I tell you how difficult it was to get this dry ass weed down my mouth. I mean, it took me at least three minutes to eat one of the dime bags. And Tyler was refusing to eat the other fucking bag. And there was no way in hell that I was going to be able to eat the second one before the cop got back to the car. So what did I do? Well, I took that other bag and I stuck it up my vagina. Yes, I stuck it up my vagina, and this was not the first time that I had done that. Anytime I traveled, anytime I flew with weed, that's where I put it. It's a nice little internal coin purse. (laughs) So I just shoved that thing up there. 
And unfortunately, we still got arrested for possession of drug paraphernalia because we didn't realize that there was a roach. The end of a blunt was in an empty cigarette box in the glove compartment. So we got busted for that. But thankfully, I did get away with that weed in my internal coin purse. And instead of my parents sending me to rehab again, they sent me to a boarding school in Maine. Now, this was a character-building boarding school. You can't see me right now, but I am doing air quotes around the character-building. This was a school for troubled teens. And now you are in for a real damn treat because... I found a letter that I had written to my boyfriend at the time, and I'm going to read you the part where I am describing the school to him. Now, let me tell you about this place. There are ethics, much like rules. The ethics are no lying, cheating, stealing, drugs, tobacco, alcohol, sex, brother's keeper, and spirit of the law. Brother's keeper is if you know someone is ethically dishonest or dirty, you must turn them in. This can be from a small lie like using someone's shampoo without asking or something big like heroin. Technically, it is just as bad for you to know about someone else as it is to be the one doing it yourself. And spirit of the law is if you plan on doing something, but just for some reason you don't follow through. You get in trouble as if you had actually done it. To me, this place is a brainwashing cult, but I have to suck it up. When you break ethics, you go on something called 2-4 or work crew. This is where you do yard work all day. At meals, you sit alone at a table. You cannot talk to anyone, not to mention the ridiculous 5.30 a.m. workouts that make you throw up. I have gone on, on, I have gone on 2-4 twice. The first time I smoked weed and cigarettes, Brother's Keeper, and Spirit of the Law. The second time, I stole Benadryl from a faculty's house. But 2-4 sucks ass. I hate telling on people, but it's what you have to do here to save your own ass. You can't trust anyone here, and you really can't get away with shit. Uh, this next part is my favorite thing that I wrote. I came here expecting to find a nice group of people to smoke weed with, but indeed, that is not the case. This week at school, some kids got busted for buying Xanax over the internet from India. Ten cents a pop. Also, a kid wrote with his own shit on the wall in his dorm room. That's about as exciting as it gets here. Kids in trouble— Kids buying pills from India and kids riding on the wall with their own shit. <laughs> Man, what a gem of a letter. And I actually didn't have to stay for the full year. Somehow, I, I don't know how I pulled it off. It did entail spending one night in the psych ward, though. I convinced my parents over Christmas break to not send me back. And it was at this point that things really took a turn for the worse for me. I mean, not like things had been going that great anyways, but it was at this moment where it seemed like my alcoholism and my addiction started taking steroids. I drank and used drugs at any opportunity. I was literally a human garbage can. 
Alcohol was always my top choice, but I sure as hell did not discriminate. Opiates, benzos, mushrooms, LSD, nitrous oxide. And over the course of the next year and a half, drinking and drugging went from fun to fun with problems to no fun and just problems. And I transformed into that girl you heard about at the party who got everyone arrested. When I drank, I turned into a monster shit show. I blacked out. I caused scenes. I truly sucked to be around. And the few friends I had wanted nothing to do with me. And frankly, I don't blame them a bit. And when I would try to make new friends, it really would only take them one or two times of hanging out with me before they would realize I was not someone to be friends with. And my world got very, very small, which just caused me to drink and drug even more in order to cope with the isolation and the toxic shame I felt deep down inside. During my senior year of high school, I got a fake ID, and this is when I became a daily drinker. I spent most nights of my senior year of high school at home drinking alone, except for the nights that I had to go to outpatient rehab. I think my parents sent me to two different outpatients that that year. But on those nights where I sat drinking alone, while everyone else my own age was out having fun, which I could see from the Facebook photos that they were posting— I told myself that things would be better, that things would be different once I went off to college. Yes, I knew I had a drinking problem, but I didn't think that was really the problem. The problem was that I was cursed, that the seventh grade blowjob incident and other things that had occurred since then had cursed me and caused me to transform into this monster when I drank. And somehow, I thought that getting a clean slate in college meant that I would no longer turn into this monster, and people would like me, and I would have friends and fun things to do. But boy, was I wrong. In a matter of just a few weeks at college, I found myself drinking alone in my dorm room. Because Nothing was different. I had been kicked out of several parties. My roommates fucking hated me. And I still turned into that monster when I drank. And I started to drink around the clock. If I wasn't sleeping, I was drinking. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and have to take a swig from the vodka bottle or the rum bottle that was on the floor next to my bed to keep from going into withdrawal. And after a three-week bender of continuously drinking, I tried to stop and I tried to detox myself in my dorm room, but I started to go through horrible withdrawal. It was like the worst version of the flu, except I was also shaking, hallucinating. I couldn't sleep and I could barely catch a breath. And I had a a quasi-friend take me to the medical center at the school in which the doctor immediately called an ambulance to take me to the hospital because he was afraid I was going to have a seizure. And then he called my mom, and he told her that if I was his daughter, 
he would withdraw me from school for medical purposes immediately. His exact words to her were, she's going to die if she stays here. And after three days in the hospital, I went into inpatient rehab again for two weeks. And it would be during these two weeks that I would fully concede to myself that I was an alcoholic. I wasn't cursed. I wasn't misunderstood. I was completely powerless over alcohol. My life was unmanageable. And continuing to drink and use drugs meant a miserable life of isolation that would ultimately result in death. So when I got out of treatment, I came to live in Jacksonville, Florida. So my parents had met there in the 80s, and they always had plans to go back there when I went off to college. So I came to Jacksonville. uh, I had a fresh start, and I started going to AA meetings, and I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. I made a couple of friends. And then when I had six months sober, I met a boy at a meeting. Let's call him Billy. And I really liked Billy, and Billy said that he liked me too. The problem was that Billy was dating another girl in the program who I was sort of friendly with. So I told him that if he wanted to date me, then he needed to cut things off with her. So it's a Sunday, and he goes over to her place to break the news. And I'm thinking this is going to be like a 20, 30-minute conversation, But then two hours later, he calls me to let me know that he actually had a change of heart and that he was actually going to be with her and not me. And the thing that really sucked here was that there was a high probability that I was going to have to see both of them, Billy and the girl, at a meeting later that night. I had to go to this meeting because I was part of the setup crew. Then out of nowhere, the thought dawned on me that one of my parents had a prescription for Klonopin in the house. Klonopin is a benzo like Xanax. And I thought the only way I'm going to be able to face them at this meeting is if I take a pill. So I took a pill. And when I got home from the meeting, I remember Googling, is one pill a relapse? And since I didn't find anything that specifically told me that it was, I told myself, nope, this is not a relapse. But in case you are wondering, yes, that is a relapse. Taking a pill that is not prescribed to you in order to change the way that you feel, that qualifies as a relapse. So it's a week later, and the thought pops in my head, hey, Andrea, It's been a whole week and you haven't thought about taking a pill. You can totally take a pill. So I took a pill. And then a few days later, oh my God, you haven't thought about taking a pill in a couple of days. You can totally take another one. And before you know it, I am off to the races, but I keep going to meetings and I keep working with my sponsor and I keep saying that I'm sober. So one day my mom went over to this woman's house that we knew um, we knew from the meetings and she had relapsed. And we went over there to check on her and to make sure that her pets were getting fed. And I go into the bathroom and I start going through her medicine cabinet and I find muscle relaxers, which I take a handful. Later that evening, I go to a meeting and I am nodding out and I decide that I'm going to leave. And so... Within a few minutes of getting in my car to drive home, I drive over a curb and I get a flat tire. 
And I then proceed on my merry way uh, home, which was another 25-minute drive. And by the time I had got home, I had done $3,000 worth of damage to the car. But my excuse was that I had never gotten a flat tire before. I didn't know you couldn't drive on a flat tire. So right before I had, quote unquote, nine months sober, I take a trip to New York City with Billy. So Billy, that girl, that other girl, she ended up moving to Orlando. So lucky me, I get to date Billy now since I am second choice. So on our last night there, I wait until he falls asleep and I sneak out of the apartment that we're staying at. And I go to a bar and I spent the next several hours drinking Long Island iced teas and talking to the guy on the bar stool next to me about how I was in AA. And then the following day, we flew back to Jacksonville and I went to a meeting that night and I picked up a nine-month chip. And I shared about how I had gone on this trip and how I really wanted to drink, but I didn't. So a week later, the gig's up. I am drunk, and I drive my car onto Billy's front yard. So there's no fooling anyone that I'm sober. And I fess up to my sponsor, which it was already pretty obvious to her that I was not sober, given how many times I had shown up to meetings on something. And I met her at a meeting, and I announced myself as a newcomer. But I could not stay sober that week. I couldn't even get a day. I didn't drink, but I started abusing over-the-counter medication just like I had as a teenager. And at the end of that week, I made a decision to go back into rehab so that I could have 30 days where I couldn't get my hands on anything. So on September 1st, 2008, I checked myself into rehab and I haven't had a drink or drug since. And the way I've been able to do this is through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know 12-step programs aren't for everyone, and there definitely are other ways people have been able to get sober and stay sober. But AA and the 12 steps is what has worked for me and millions of others. And in my opinion, I think that everyone would benefit alcoholic or not, by working the 12 steps. As the underlying purposes are to become the best versions of ourselves, form a relationship with a higher power of our own understanding, and to be of service to others. And sobriety has improved my life in many areas beyond just the drinking and the drugs. It has allowed me to live and enjoy life. And most importantly, it has allowed me to have friends. You know, one of the biggest fears I had when I first got sober was, what if alcohol wasn't the problem? What if I'm just someone that people don't like? You know, it took some time and practice, but through sobriety, I learned how to be a friend. And I learned that I was someone people wanted to be friends with. Sobriety has given me so many gifts, but I think the biggest, most cherished gift has been friendship, in particular female friendships. I really hadn't had a female friendship last more than a few months since the seventh grade. And now I have friendships that have lasted over 12 years, and I have experienced a level of connection 
that I didn't even know was possible. It's truly a fucking miracle. What I also want to make very clear is that sobriety doesn't hinder my life in any way, shape, or form. I have no issues being around people that are drinking or using drugs. Uh, Honestly, sometimes I prefer it. I feel like my base operating system is at two or so drinks. So I like for other people to have a few drinks so they can get on my level. Obviously, when it gets to the point where people are unable to have a conversation with me, that's my cue to dip out. Now, for the first year or so, I really kept myself in a recovery cocoon. I only hung out with other people in recovery. I didn't go to bars or concerts or anywhere where drinking was the primary purpose. And what I tell the girls that I sponsor is that the reason we avoid these situations in early recovery is so that we can do these things later on. And as I continue to stay sober, I expanded my bubble little by little. And now I participate in life fully. I go to concerts, I go to bars, parties, and I have just as much fun as everyone else. I am completely comfortable in my sober skin, probably to a fault. And based off my dance moves, if you saw me at a concert, you'd probably think I was under the influence of something. But I have no shame. And I always tell my friends that they probably shouldn't go to a concert with me if they're easily embarrassed by association. I am fairly confident that my dance moves have never given a guy an erection. Unfortunately, there was one area that didn't seem to improve, though, as I stayed sober, and that was my picker. And when I say picker, I mean my man picker. I suffered from broken picker syndrome, which I am going to tell you all about next week. So now for my interview with TJ. I don't never want to drink again. Welcome, TJ. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. You know, I heard you speak at the Dr. Dave Smith Symposium. I guess that was in 2019. And I just remember being really wowed. And um, I'm super pumped to, to actually get to, to talk to you in person. So, Oh, thank you. That was a, such a great event. Uh, I love Dr. David E. Smith, and what an honor to be on the stage presenting on conscious recovery as part of the innovations in addiction treatment. So I'm incredibly grateful for that and to be here with you. Awesome. Yeah, that that uh, conference was focused on using psychedelics and treatment of trauma and addiction, and I'm hoping I can get somebody on a future episode to kind of dive into that. But I want to focus our conversation mostly on recovery and healing, but we do need to have a little juice in the beginning. So I was hoping that you could talk about, you know, if you were, um, if this was for the Enquirer or if this was a trailer for your addiction, the movie of your addiction, what would that be? Wow, it would be a full-length feature. Let's put it that way. (laughs) There's a lot I could say about that. You know, my, my teenage years were actually filled with all sorts of different addictions. But I actually will go back a little bit further. I had a profound 
experience at the age of seven. And that experience was me closing my heart. And I remember it like it was yesterday. There was so much happening in my life. And there was this experience of closing down. And I walked around that way feeling broken, feeling damaged. Um, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't lovable. The reason I go back to that is that by the time I was 13, when I discovered uh, weed and alcohol, it actually brought so much relief for me. So in the beginning, my addiction was absolutely fun. It was something that really helped me. And of course, it did not continue to work that way. So the last year of my using, I was 19 from 19 to 20. I got sober when I was 20. Uh, It was really empty and it was really difficult. And I was using ecstasy and lots of it. And I wasn't sleeping or eating most nights and most days. And I reached a place of spiritual bankruptcy where I felt so empty and so disconnected from myself. So, I mean, I could tell like, you know, sensational, exciting stories, but the truth is what really was the pivotal moment that allowed me to get sober was the inner emptiness. I felt so empty and so disconnected from myself in the world. Yeah. So I got sober at 19 and, you know, the thing for me, and I'm curious if this is your experience as well, it wasn't like I had years of where I was trying to control it. You know, I don't really know like what teenager is, um, is trying to, you know, I'll only have two glasses of wine. So for me, when it talks about in the AA big book about how the great obsession of every alcoholic is that one day they can once again control their drinking. I didn't have that 10, 20, 30 years of where it worked for me. It sucked. And so I don't, I think I'm grateful for that, that I, it wasn't like it, it worked for a long period of time. And I'm desperately trying to go back to that place. Like it, it, I don't have that experience. And so I'm curious if that's similar to yours. Well, a lot of young people are like that. And I hear people saying that mine is maybe slightly different, but only because it was that first night that I used ecstasy. And I was trying to recapture that. So it wasn't so much I was thinking, oh, I'd love to learn how to drink or use normally. It was that I was chasing that one high that I had when I absolutely felt all my walls come down. I felt so open, so loving, so present. And the truth is it never quite worked that way again. But here I was every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night for a year trying to recapture that. And we know the story, using more using different drugs, finding new places to go that were exciting. So I was, in a way, trying to recapture that initial high. Toward the end of my using, I actually did try to control it. I went to therapy. I, of course, was not telling her everything that was happening, but I was aware enough of my drug use that I actually signed a contract with my therapist saying that I wouldn't drink or use, and it lasted literally 24 hours. And it was part of, I mean, I didn't get sober that next day, but it was a part of me recognizing, oh, wow, I really, really intended not to use drugs. Of course, I was going to keep drinking. That wasn't even an issue, right? But I was going to not use drugs and I couldn't even go 24 hours. Mm-hmm. What about when you first got sober for those first few years? What was your experience like being a young person in sobriety? Were there many other young people were you able to figure out how to have fun? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, when I when I got sober, it was an interesting time because it was 1986 and a treatment was really starting to explode. There was a huge wave of treatment. 
And so where, where I got sober, it was mostly older people. But then a friend of mine told me about this young person's group that I could go to. And I walked in there and I was one of the oldest people in the room at 20. It was like 12, 13, 14, 15 year olds. And I quickly realized a couple of things. One, this is going to be fun, but also this is probably not the place I'm going to go to for my recovery. It's the place I'm going to go to for fun. So I quickly realized that the older people around me were so important because they had so much experience. And then there were the young people. We could, you know, smoke cigarettes all night, drink coffee. We know the young person's story, go to dances. But the other thing is I, um, I rebelled against this thing about not going, uh, to clubs. I went out every Friday and Saturday night to a nightclub for my first year of sobriety, even though people were saying I shouldn't. But uh, I went with sober people and I was like, I'm 20. I am not going to not go out and have fun. Mm -hmm. So I really had a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, what happened for me as I realized being sober was so much more fun than using that actually those first couple of years being 20, 21, 22, some of the most exciting and fun times in my life. Yeah, that was my experience too. I mean, I hadn't had friends for so many years and um, it was just, it was just so, so, so fun. Just laughing so hard that I peed my pants and um, that happened on multiple occasions. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think that that's like the most important thing for young people to stay sober is they have to figure out a way to, to be sober, but to also be 20 years old. Absolutely. And I remember, it's funny you're, you're saying this because I remember when I turned 21 and I actually got sober, I think it was something like 54 days before my 21st birthday. And of course, I had all this anxiety and people would say, well, it's not your 21st birthday today, so you don't have to worry about that. But on my 21st birthday, I was saying, I don't care. I'm going to a club. I don't care what anyone says. And I went with uh, two of my really good friends and we made this pact that if any of us felt unsafe, we'd leave. <clears throat> so we go into this nightclub and we're dancing and I was like, I don't feel unsafe. I feel a little bit bored. Mm -hmm. And we ended up going to Denny's and staying up all night and having these amazing conversations. And it was when I realized that what I thought of was fun wasn't really necessarily fun anymore. And it was mm -hmm. one of the most amazing birthdays because of the depth of conversation and connection that was so much different than two months earlier when I was trying so desperately to connect with the people in my life. And we were just drinking and doing drugs. We weren't being authentic. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So in, in 2017, you know, you, you launched the conscious recovery method and you described this as not as a standalone treatment model, but rather something that could be added to a, a 12 step program or therapy or any other sort of support system. And I was hoping that you could kind of talk about uh, how that came about and explain what conscious recovery is. Yes, thank you. I it it started with my own experience, of course, because I had taken this journey of recovery, and around twenty years sober, twenty twenty two years sober, something like that. I started working in the addiction treatment field, and I quickly realized that people were coming back to treatment four, five, six times. Of course, I had already known that, you know, being in recovery myself for all those years. But working in the field and watching people come back and the treatment program still trying the same things, and then even having the arrogance to say to the client, "What are you going to do differently?" And of course, that's an important question, but I think it's also an important question to ask us as treatment professionals, 
What are we going to do differently? Mm-hmm. Conscious recovery was born out of my experience, both working in the field and my own recovery. And the foundational principle is underneath all addictive behavior is an essential self that's whole and perfect. I came to that because of my educational background and my life experience that when we look for what's broken, there's a higher probability that we're going to find what's broken. Mm. And I noticed and experienced that clinicians, therapists, counselors were being trained to diagnose and treat. In other words, they were being trained to look for what's wrong and how to fix it. And I realized that that is important on one level. And there's this other level of awareness where we're actually co-signing and helping co-create the brokenness. And in my own journey, I realized that shame is one of the foundational um, underlying issues that drive addiction. So if we're looking for what's broken in our clients, um, we're actually buying into the shame and creating more of it. So that became the foundational principle. I started asking myself, what if I were to look at every client I worked with through the lens of wholeness rather than through the lens of brokenness? And you, I think I told you when we first spoke that when I read Conscious Recovery, I was like, oh my God, he's going to think that I just read this book and just used it for everything that's in my podcast. Everything you say is everything that I've been talking about. And, you know, you talk about the three root causes of addiction being unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame. And so um, I was hoping you could expand on that a little bit more. Absolutely. Because second to that foundational principle of the wholeness underneath all the addiction is also a recognition that most or many modalities used in treatment were focused only on the symptoms and behaviors. Mm -hmm. And we were stabilizing our clients. We were removing, if you will, the symptom. The symptom is addiction, among many other things, without actually getting down to the deeper root causes. So when I really had the internal knowing to write Conscious Recovery because it started as a book. Uh, I sat with what do what have I experienced in my own life and with clients? What are the roots of addiction? And it was really clear to me, these three root causes, unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame. And about 100% of the clients I was working with were experiencing those. And I also recognize there are other aspects to addiction, but these were the three I focused on in conscious recovery when I wrote the book, because these were the underlying issues that I I was seeing not being addressed in treatment. Um, They were, of course, being addressed on some level. I'm not saying I'm the first person to say trauma, you know, is a root cause of addiction, but I began to be come curious about how we could actually start to heal those underlying root causes rather than just continuing to focus on the symptoms. And can you talk a little bit about this, the spiritual disconnection portion of it? Yeah, because that that's really something I think that sets uh, conscious recovery apart in many ways, yep. <laughs> because a lot of treatment, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> A lot of treatment focuses on trauma, of course, and shame is a big conversation, but this spiritual disconnection piece is something really different. And for me, it's profoundly simple. I remember coming into the world feeling very happy that joy was my natural state and that I 
then I came into a world that was beginning to teach me that I was broken in some way. And so I disconnected from my true nature. And I see that happening over and over and over again through traumatic experiences. We separate from our true self and we start to begin to believe lies about ourselves instead of that fundamental truth of wholeness. So for me, that separation is something that not only drove my own addiction, but I can see that in every client I've ever worked with. We start to believe that we're broken or damaged in some way. And that starts with that separation from our true nature. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as the the unresolved trauma goes, now I feel that, I think that somebody could can uh, obtain sobriety, but I think that by not addressing these three issues that, long-term permanent sobriety is unlikely. And I think that a lot of the times when you see people who have 10, 20 years sober and they go back out, I think it's because they haven't addressed these underlying issues. My experience is that this stuff came out and I didn't really start really looking at it until I had nine years sober. And I'm just curious what your opinion is as far as, I feel that you have to, you know, you have to take them as they kill you. Right. And at what point do you feel that it's appropriate? Like, I'm not quite sure that at two years sober that I would have been able to really look at these things or be able to, you know, handle working through them. So I'm just curious what your opinion is as far as that is when in the recovery process, do you really feel like it's time to kind of address these kind of deeper issues? I'll answer that in two ways. First of all, I want to say thank you so much because this conversation right now is what I'm most excited about. And it came from my own journey. Like you, I didn't address any of the underlying issues. And perhaps like you, I was surrounded by people that were saying, oh, don't worry about that. Just don't drink today. If you just don't drink, it's a successful day. Of course, that's true. But I reached a place around two years sober where I was close to suicide. And that was because I hadn't addressed the underlying root issues. I met a woman who changed my life, Mary Helen, who helped me explore how to heal this trauma and reconnect with my true nature. And the reason that it's important for me to share that is simple. I think that on one hand, of course, it's true that we might take years to address the underlying root causes, but I also want to be a voice for let's also address it on day one, because I don't think we need to continue in that paradigm where we're telling people, all you need to do is not drink, don't worry about any of that. In the in a clinical setting, I think the fear is oh my gosh, if we address these underlying root issues, it might be too much for them. But the issue is people are coming back to treatment four, five, six times. And in my experience, it is almost always because they haven't addressed the trauma, the disconnection, and the shame. So to answer your question succinctly, I think on day one, we can start to address this. One of the reasons I feel passionate about this and why I'm using conscious recovery as a curriculum and as a system of care in treatment is that I had that experience of not addressing it and felt so much more pain at two years sober than I did when I was drinking. Mm -hmm. And I would like to be a part of ushering in a new era where we change that paradigm and start to ask the question, what if people are more capable of addressing it than we might realize? And I would imagine probably 20 years ago, or even, I don't know, 10 years ago, 
you probably received some resistance or, or pushback maybe from the medical community. And so I was just curious if you could maybe talk about that and if, if you've seen that change at all. It's changed dramatically. Uh, 12 years ago, when I started working in the field and I was bringing these concepts, especially addressing some of the underlying root causes, it was exactly what you said. There was definitely pushback. I think the party line then and even now to a certain extent is we don't address the trauma. We simply help someone stabilize and get them the long-term help they need. And of course, as I said, that makes sense and it even sounds really great and it's clinically appropriate for many clients. But there are also a large number of clients where it's really important that we address the underlying root causes and our industry, the whole recovery movement is more open to it. I also, when I got sober in 12 step, in 1986, this conversation was not happening. And people were saying, I heard people sharing, and this I think is really important, Andrea. I would hear people sharing and they would share these horrifically traumatic childhoods and these experiences. And then they would literally say, but that's not why I drank. I drank because I have a disease. And I was like, wow, you know, for sure, on some level, you're connecting the dots that it's also about the trauma. But then they would have the disclaimer because that's what we were being told. And I'm not here to debate whether addiction is a disease because I think it's that and not that or. And, you know, more and more people are waking up and recognizing that trauma needs to be addressed. Bottom line. Mm -hmm. And could you maybe share about you know, a particular healing experience that you had or just a profound uh, awareness or experience that you've had that you could see that you've kind of rewired? Without a doubt. And again, you're speaking to one of the core concepts of conscious recovery. I really appreciate it because the core false beliefs that we develop about ourselves are generally trapped in the unconscious. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're not really consciously aware. And even when we become aware, right, we become aware of the narrative that we've been walking around with. We don't heal it that way by just changing the thinking. And so my healing experience came around two years sober, as I shared with you, it might've been 18 months. I was feeling suicidal. I was feeling disconnected. All the underlying root causes were coming up. I became painfully aware of the trauma of my past. And what you're sharing was so core. I realized that I had these core false beliefs. I'm not lovable and I'm not worthy. And it was through my work with Mary Helen, this incredible being of light that came into my life, where I began to recognize that I was creating what I call reality based on my point of view 100% of the time. And so I started to recognize that what was in the unconscious was actually running the show. And until I created a space to start getting down to that and begin to unlearn that, I was never really going to heal the underlying root causes. So in my life, I'm not lovable belief created these relationships that were confirming that I'm not lovable as desperately as I was trying to find someone to love me. Mary Helen introduced me to a different way of being. And that was that recovery really is about unlearning all the ideas I have about myself and the world that were keeping me feeling stuck and also were contributing to all sorts of different types of addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was my experience as well. It was each 
each relationship, each demise, the demise of each relationship was just further confirming these beliefs that I had about myself. And therefore I would just manifest it into my next relationship. So I want to play a little bit of a devil's advocate. So, you know, we have these core root causes of addiction. So we address them. Does that mean that somebody can, can drink successfully? (laughs) That's the question that I hear a lot. And I usually hear that from clients, right, that are early in recovery that are actually in discernment about whether they want, you know, abstinence or not. I actually will answer it this way. Abstinence is my path. I am so grateful for it. I have not considered any other path because why would I want to drink and use again? So when someone hears me say, we can actually hear the underlying root causes, the mind might say, oh, then I can drink or use again. That's not at all what I'm saying. Actually, the opposite. When we start to heal the underlying root causes, in my experience, and this is just for me, we actually don't want to drink or use. It's not going to enhance anything. I'm no longer wanting to escape or change this experience. When I reconnect with my true nature, I don't want to medicate that. Who would want to medicate perfection? And what I mean by perfection is that spiritual perfection. And even people I know in the spiritual world who don't have a substance use disorder or addiction, they're not drinking and using alcohol because it's not really what they want spiritually. So that's kind of a long answer. The bottom line is I do not believe when you heal the underlying root causes that you can drink normally again. I don't really want to like be in that conversation. It's kind of not my conversation, but I love the question because it is what the mind often asks. And I hear clients ask me that all the time. Mm-hmm. And what do you find is one of the most common roadblocks um, for recovery and healing when you're working with clients? Is there anything in particular? This may sound overly simplistic, but I think addiction is in some way trying to manage or run from or numb out emotions. And the biggest roadblock that I have seen is people have an idea that they can't feel. And it's because there have been years and years of running from emotions, numbing out emotions, changing the way we feel. So I think learning how to be present with ourselves and learning how to feel again is a huge roadblock that I have seen. And unfortunately, a lot of the uh, recovery models unconsciously co-sign on that. I've heard people say over and over again, gosh, I woke up just not feeling great. And someone will say, well, just launch into service so you don't have to feel that. Or work this step and you don't have to feel it. Or maybe if you call your therapist, you won't feel that. But we have to, I think, come to a place of recognition that there's no such thing as a negative emotion. Emotions are there as an internal guidance system and running from emotions has been our addiction. So recovery is learning how to be present with them. And what happens in my experience is once we start to learn how to be present with our emotions, usually we realize, oh my gosh, I've been running from this. And the running is actually so much more more painful than the feeling. Mm -hmm. Or the other one, feelings aren't facts. Right. It's true. That's true too. Um, and, and I'm curious for you when you hear that, what, what shows up for you? What, what do you think people mean by feelings are not facts? Well, in many ways, I mean, I think that my, my feelings or what I think my feelings are about are not actually what they're about. Right. Um, and I think that that's common, especially in this space, especially in the unresolved trauma area, 
when I'm wanting to kill myself because my boyfriend of three weeks just broke up with me. Uh, feelings aren't facts in the sense that it has nothing to do with this bozo, right? Right. And I love that because uh, Dr. Gabor Mate says trauma does not show up as a memory. It shows up as a reaction. And so I love what you're saying because most of us believe we're feeling something because of what we're experiencing. But as The Course in Miracles says, what we're upset about is not what we're upset about. And when I understood that, it was a game changer, mostly in my work, honestly, working with clients, because I used to think I needed to address the situation that seemed to be creating the feeling And then when I understood, wow, as you said so beautifully, it's not about the situation as much as it is about the unresolved past. So if we can unplug from, as you said, the person that I'm in a relationship with that's bringing all this up and start to look at the wound, uh, Don Miguel Ruiz says, it's not your words that hurt me, it's that you touched an unhealed wound. I love that because when we start to focus on the wound, we start to look at that as a way to heal that's really different than trying to work out the relationships. doesn't mean we don't do that other stuff, but in addition to that, recognizing that the wound is getting touched because it's wanting to heal. And that's the deeper work, as you and I, I think, know really well in our own journeys. I need to unplug from the externals at some point and really be curious what's really getting touched here and what would healing look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I think too, though, every time I'm feeling an uncomfortable emotion, I don't think that necessarily means that there's some deep uh, unresolved trauma that I need to look at. I mean, sometimes I just, I have a bad day and, and I'll say that with sponsees that I work with, you know, sometimes, sometimes I don't think it's necessarily important to like really dive deep all the time into why I'm feeling this way. I mean, a lot of the times it just passes, but I think it's when you have these, uh, reoccurring feelings, problems, intensities, that's like when we have to kind of really look at it when we have these patterns. Yeah. And I love what you're saying because at some point I realized that my feelings were not permanent. Now I know that's obvious, but I didn't know that emotionally or um, energetically. I knew that only intellectually. These feelings aren't going to stay with me forever. And I also realized that trying to identify the why of the feeling was keeping me stuck because I wanted to identify the why so I could get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And so my spiritual practice became, let me be present with this emotion and not try to figure it out because that to me is recovery. You know, I remember uh, when I was in a early in a relationship and I shared with my partner, you know, I I just woke up feeling really sad today. And he said, well, why do you think that is? And what do you want to do about it? And it was like, oh no, I'm okay with just noticing the sadness. I'm okay with being present with it and allowing it to move through me. It doesn't actually stay stuck unless I stuck it there. How was that for great grammar? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, you mentioned spiritual practice. What does your spiritual practice look like on a daily basis? You know, it's changed for me over the years. Uh, Meditation, absolutely. Being present is, I think, the key to it. Um, I've had many different formal practices. There was a long period of time I loved yoga. I think meditation is the key for me. And I don't have as much of a formal practice as I used to. And I'm going to share why. At some point, I heard the term spiritual practice. 
and I started asking myself the question, what are we practicing for? Because I thought it was about having these incredible meditations. But then I realized, oh no, this is because we're going to practice for the way our way of being in the world. So for me, it's being really connected with myself at every moment and being aware of the ability to be present in my life on a daily basis. And really my practice now, and this is my new acronym, I tell people I'm studying to be a cop, and that is curious, open, and present. Can I just be curious and open and present when I read something on social media and I notice I have a reaction? Let me be curious about that. Let me be open. So a huge part of it is noticing my my reactive impulse Um, reconnecting with my true nature and having a lot of compassion for all parts of myself. Hashtag cop. (laughs) Let's talk about your other hashtag, hashtag unharmable. This is your new little project you got going. Do you want to share what that's all about? Yes. uh, Hashtag unharmable started with a conversation with my now colleague, Jeremy Miller. And our conversation started with the addiction model, the addiction paradigm, addiction treatment, and this idea of unharmability, it evolved into what we intend to be a global movement in helping people recognize that there's a place within them that is unharmed and unharmable. When people try to heal, I think a lot of times we believe we are our past, we are our past traumas, we are our thoughts. But what gets created when I begin to explore the possibility that there's a part of me that's unharmable, it really came from Jeremy saying, what do you think the core concept of all your work is? Mm. I wrote a book, Conscious Being, in 2015. I'm working on my third book that's coming out this year. I've done many different webinars and podcasts. And he asked me what the theme is. And the theme, the way I answered was immediate. It was that we're whole and perfect that there's a place within us that no matter what has happened or no matter what I've done cannot harm that, that we are ultimately unharmable. And he said, that's it. That is the message. That's the core message, whether you're a person in recovery, a person with relationship issues, whatever it is, recognizing that place within us that's unharmable is such a game changer. It fundamentally changes the way we experience reality. So, so I, you have a course, correct? Yes. The new Unharmable course just came out. Uh, it is in three parts, and it focuses a lot on core false beliefs because the unharmable piece is what we come into the world with, and then we get programmed through our friends, through our family systems, through our educational systems to believe that we're broken in some way. And so the course is really designed to help us look at where these core false beliefs originated, what is the impact of these core false beliefs, and then most important, what is the way out? And the way out of the core false beliefs leads us naturally to experiencing our wholeness. And is that, it's online? It's an online course. Yeah, it's an online course. There's video and then there's written material and some reading material as well. Unharmable.com is the place to find that. Okay, and then what is your, what's the book that you're uh, working on now? What's that about? It is Conscious Creation, Five Steps to Embracing the Life of Your Dreams. Amazing. 
Yeah. And, you know, I also have some other courses on, if you go to tjwoodward.com, I have a, a very extensive conscious recovery for individuals course, which uh, I had a client once that said it took me nine months to finish. It definitely was giving birth. So it's a very long um, course that's self-paced. Um, and when I say long, it doesn't mean it needs to be long, but my hope is that people take their time with it. And it's me with video and exercises, walking people through the entire conscious recovery process. Yeah, I think what I've learned through my adult child journey, healing recovery, is that that's really what this is all about. It's about resolving these issues to live a life of depth and meaning and to live in my purpose. Um, and I really think that that's really what it all comes down to. You know, I started my journey just not wanting to feel like I wanted to die. And what has transpired has been, you know, this, this journey of figuring out, um, I've he I heard this quote once, it's where purpose, passion, and skill collide, true bliss resides. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that it's through this work and everything that you're talking about is really the, the end goal is living a life of depth and purpose and meaning. For sure. And that is something that's really fundamental in my own journey and in my work, because I think uh, we change based on what we do want, not on what we don't want. And I think that changing on what we don't want has a really short shelf life. And we hear that in recovery. I want to remember how bad it was so I don't repeat it. But what you're saying, I think, is when we move into longer-term recovery or a spiritual life, it's like, no, what do I want? And I think happiness, purpose, meaning. I mean, that's really what it's all about, right? How do I now that I've had this incredible experience of reconnecting with myself, how do I share that with the world? How can I live on purpose? And even though it's going to look a little different for all of us, I think that's a life of deep satisfaction is how can I be part of uh, shifting the planet? How can I make a, a profound difference on planet Earth? Well, you are doing the Lord's work. I hope you know that. Um, what is that like to think about, you know, you've, you've worked in this industry for what, 10, 15 years. Yes. Um, I'm sure I know that you've helped many, many, many people. Um, how does that feel? Are you able to, to, you know, sit in that and, and feel that? Well, there are a couple of things I'll say. Um, my friend, Dr. Krista Gilbert, I asked her one time, do you miss working directly with clients? And she said, yes, but I realize now my work will touch the lives of people I will never meet. Mm -hmm. And when she said that, it shot to my core because I realized as much as I loved working with clients, it was time to take my message to a larger um, sphere of influence, really, and people I'll never meet. And the way I work with it, honestly, the way I work with it with my own psyche and my own ego is I remind myself of the incredible gifts that I received from Mary Helen, who was my first teacher. And the truth is, conscious recovery is honestly an extension of her work, her being. She was someone who was um, extremely introverted. And I don't mean like what we classically think of as shy. She did her profound work one-on-one, -on -one, and she knew that was her intention. She said to me at one point toward kind of toward the end of her life, she said, wow, you are so extroverted. And I know that you're going to take this message to a much larger audience. And I don't even know if that's true because 
she sat with one person and that one person then sat with a hundred people, right? And so it's been a ripple effect. But what really helps me is to feel into the energy or the frequency of her, her heart, her message, and remind myself that I'm simply, you know, a spokesperson for that. And that really helps me to live on purpose, stay right-sized, as we say, and then recognize that I'm only helping people because it was such a beautiful gift to me. And then then I'm in, in the frequency of service and my life is filled with joy and ease. Yes, the gift we were so freely given. Yes. So where can people find you? tjwoodward.com is the best. You can learn about all my different Everything I'm up to, unharmable, conscious being, conscious recovery, all of it is there at tjwoodward.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for today. And thank you for all the work that you do. You know, we, we need more people like you. And I'm just so grateful that we had this conversation. Thank you, Andrea. And thank you for the great work you're doing. I love that you're doing this podcast. And I feel very, very grateful. So that wraps up today's episode. I hope you were entertained. I hope that you learned something. As always, check out the show notes for resources to help you on your own journey. A few things before we part. I would like to create a new segment in the show called Hit a Girl Up. I posted this on my TikTok and my Instagram, but I have been receiving so many wonderful messages from you all. The primary purpose in me creating this podcast was to create a community, to create a space for those who have been negatively impacted from growing up in a dysfunctional family, that they are not alone, to be heard and seen. So you can either leave me a voicemail at 415-562-8050 or send me an email at andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. I will include both of those in the show notes, but hit a girl up. I want to hear your insights from the episode. I want to hear your victories, your struggles, any questions you may have, please hit me up. You can find me on Instagram and TikTok at adultchildpod. I am putting out some top-notch content on TikTok, you guys. You need to go check that shit out. Next week, we are talking broken picker syndrome. It's going to be super raw. It's going to be super vulnerable. And I am super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. 